You're listening to a podcast of Your Pet Matters with me, Dr. Michael Tequila, Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. on 1077thebronc.com. Your pet is an important part of your life, and Dr. T knows how to take care of your best friend. 107.7 The Bronx presents Your Pet Matters with Dr. Michael Tequila of the Animal Hospital at Kingston and Blauenberg. Every Saturday morning, Dr. T offers intelligent and informative pet health care talk with just the right dose of bedside manner, exclusively for our furry friends. If you own a dog or cat and have a question about your pet's overall health, call Dr. T now at 877-900-1077. Your Pet Matters is underwritten by the Pet Wellness Professionals of the Animal Hospital at Kingston and Blauenberg. Small hospital, big medicine. For more information online, it's BarkMeowVets.com. That's BarkMeowVets.com. The doctor can see you now. Here's Dr. Michael Tequila and this week's edition of Your Pet Matters. Good morning and welcome to Your Pet Matters. I'm your host, Michael Dr. T. Tequila, and I've got a really, for me personally, this is one of my big moments, and it's a very special honor for me to have my guest here. Um, everyone knows him. Uh, if you've seen the videos, he's most famous for, most recently, you may have seen him shivering in a dog igloo-type home. Uh, maybe a couple years ago, you may know him as, as, as the veterinarian who sat in a really hot car to give you the idea of what it's like to keep your pets in, in hot cars. And I think that that video alone really set the standard. Um, it was at the cusp of, of social media's ability to, to bring that message to you, um, our audience, about the dangers of hot cars. Uh, so I'm really, really pleased to have Dr. Ernie Ward on my show. So thanks so much for being on. I really appreciate having you here. Michael, it's a real pleasure and honor. So thank you. <laughs> and so so he's coming from North Carolina. We're Skyping right now from um, in North Carolina. So we're talking about the weather and how cold it is here in Jersey. I know we had a hot spell of high 55 last week, but we're down to about 25 with a low and sometimes in the single digits. So, um, so I really appreciated him sitting there in that cold. <laughs> <laughs> it was cold. It yeah. got really cold. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But so Dr. Ward, if you could, every every time I start the show with 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 my uh, guests, I always want and am very curious to to know how this all began from from the infancy of veterinary medicine in your mind to as well to where it led to what you're doing now. Right, and Michael, that's a, a great question and an important one, I think, for veterinary healthcare professionals. Uh, for me, this is what I knew I would always be. Uh, you know, I think some people are born with a clear sense of purpose, and I fall into that category. Um, I grew up in a rural setting. You know, both of my parents were the only members of their families to actually escape the farm. Uh, so all of my family continues to still live, uh, you know, on rural farms, small farms in Southwest Georgia and Southern Alabama. And so, you know, I grew up around animals. You know, I grew up around acreage. I grew up wandering woods and doing a lot of chores, you know, in the evenings. But it was really, you know, and I've written about this over the years, there was a, a pivotal moment for me when I was uh, about seven years of age. Um, again, we're living in a rural area and one of my dogs, uh, one of my absolute lifetime best dogs named Taco, um, was allegedly killing a neighbor's chickens. And again, you know, living in a rural farm-based uh, environment, it's very possible that Taco did kill these chickens. But regardless, Taco wound up with 12-gauge full of, you know, 12-gauge buckshot in his chest. And so nearly midnight, at least as I recollect it, uh, and my father, you know, when he was alive, we also 
tell the story like this. Uh, you know, we're rushing outside. We hear the shot. Taco limps home and and dies in my arms. Oh, yeah. um, and so that that had a profound impact. And I kind of you know have this distinct and clear memory of of laying there on the gravel, you know, even the pain in my legs, you know, of that coarse gravel digging in. Uh, and I sort of made a commitment to myself right then and there that, you know, this, I was going to try to care for animals like taco. Now, obviously no veterinarian could have saved my dog, but you know, that was the, the genesis of it. And then, you know, we, uh, I went to veterinary school. I was fortunate enough to meet my wife, uh, freshman year, really right out of high school. And so we began this journey together. Of course, she went to different graduate schools. And but we were both at University of Georgia, and then we practiced. I practiced uh, in a very in a small clinic outside of Asheville for uh, 14 months, and then you know I was ready to start my first clinic. And so in in uh, early 1993, I began my first clinic, and we wound you know doing a couple of clinics over the years. But uh, that's kind of the, the the short version of a of a very long journey to date. Wow, that that that's an amazing story. It's all it's always uh, most of my guests have always have that. I call it the gene, the veterinary gene. They've always wanted to, to enter the profession at a very young age, and, and you're no exception there. Um, that, that's amazing. But how, how did the journey go to, you know, I know you dedicated at least 20 years of your life trying to, to empower both us as veterinarians and pet parents to just increase the betterment of their pet's health. So how did that journey begin for you? Yeah, uh, you know, and, and it, that's a really good part of, of the career that that's where serendipity uh, pops up. So I'm practicing in Calabash, North Carolina. It's a very rural town at the, at the time, the population was less than 500. So dialing back, you know, to the, to the nineties. And I was always a bit of an innovator an instigator. You know, I was, I was interested in pushing the boundaries of where I thought medicine should go and client service and all those sort of, of attributes. So we were starting to do some things that were getting uh, national attention. When I say getting things national attention, basically we were buying a lot of stuff and people were like, Where, what is going on? Where is this place? And why is he placing so many orders for these drugs and these different pieces of equipment? Um, and so when some of the bigger companies started investigating, you know, they said, oh my gosh, this guy's kind of doing things that we haven't seen before. And that was when it all began. You know, they started asking me to write. Um, and this, this really, you know, I, again, as I'm always quick to point out, you know, I didn't write a single word or utter a, 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 a word, um, to, for advice till I had owned a practice for seven years. So, you know, we were well on our way to, to, you know, we were very successful and really all the, the common metrics. And so then people were saying, tell us a little bit about what you're doing down here. And, you know, I just, uh, you know, I'm kind of a, a writer, uh, you know, so I love writing and public speaking came to me naturally. So, you know, I think that all of those things sort of fell together to lead me to where I am today, you know, and, uh, I've, I've also, Michael, you know, like you, I, I think, you know, as I've always said, there's two kinds of successful people in this world. There are those that say, I got mine, you get yours. And there are those that say, I got mine, let me help you get yours. And, and I fall strongly into that second camp. So for me, when I was experiencing, you know, success, uh, you know, early in my career, I said, I, I want to show you what I'm doing. You know, I, I didn't have any sort of uh, apprehension about sharing my knowledge. I, I remember one time, you know, I was about two or three years into public speaking and somebody said, aren't you worried that your local competitors will find out your secrets? And I was like, that's the point because, you know, again, we want to push ourselves. I want to make the profession a little bit better. You know, as my father taught me and many people have been taught this, leave it better than you found it. And that's sort of how I've tried to live my life. 
That's 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 awesome. I love the words you're using, serendipity and and helping others because it it all comes back. It, it it's funny because um and th- that's part of what what I talked to you about before the show. I said that that you got my attention because of that sort of behavior long before anyone else did. And and I honestly it it's tough to mentally think about that that by helping others, what what do you gain from that other than the the satisfaction of actually helping others? But the fact that when you do and and that network you create. It's, it's amazing. We are in an incredibly small world. Our veterinary profession is incredibly small. I, I used to joke that we're two degrees of separation from every vet in the world, and I'm almost like saying that we're one degree now <laughs> That's based right. on everyone I know. And, and I think that, that just doing that little bit, whatever it is, you know, um, whether it's within your own practice or, or elsewhere or, or just call, meeting colleagues. I love meeting colleagues at, at, at just community events and introducing myself and getting rid of that geographical type of, of you know, wall and, and going from there. And I find that that just opens doors of opportunity. And I think that's that's so well said. Yeah. And Michael, you know, I, th- I think, too, and I don't know if it's generational. I don't know if it's socioeconomic. I don't know what it is. But, you know, I, I do feel that there's a slight shift um, today. I think some of the younger veterinarians seem to be very interested in, you know, you know, again, making it about themselves, making financial gains. And I think, you know, I don't know what this means for the future. You know, I, I do have concerns just as one of those leaders in our profession. Um, I know that that I think, again, as a proverb, proverb of, of a rising tide floats all ships. I, I kind of believe that. So sometimes I get a little nervous when, you know, people are, are trying to do, you know, share their information for money. And I don't know. I, I think, Michael, we'll have to struggle with this moving forward. Almost all professions and industries have sort of gone through this transition where there was a generation of people who are trying to f- more freely give and disseminate information. And then people say, well, wow, I could charge for that, you know. And so I think we're going to have to come to grips. The other thing, too, that our profession is facing, in my opinion, is as the conferences become more fragmented and as access to continuing education becomes a little more difficult and maybe even more expensive in the future, or at least the way we, we get it, how will that also impact it? Because let's face it, most of my career, you know, I've presented at some of the bigger conferences, the state conferences, you know, the regional conferences that you and I attend. And so that means that, you know, we were we were removed a lot from direct, you know, influences of, of you know, outside money. You know, we were going to speak at a conference and we didn't make a lot of money, but, you know, we felt it was the right thing. I think I think that's something that we need to be thinking about as a profession moving forward. Like, what does that mean as this changes and how do we make sure that we're getting authentic, genuine, you know, information and experiences that maybe isn't influenced by money? I don't know. It's a tough, tough, tough topic. But one no, we need to start- absolutely. I, th- I think our industry is really going through a lot of changes right now. I think there's a lot of, from, from my perspective as a practice owner, is that corporation type of influences, and then there's more and more. And, and we're seeing, it's, it's just like the shift with Facebook changing their algorithms, right? Everything's just going to change on, on how we get the message out and who we talk to and so forth. But but at, at the end, I'm glad there's people like you that exist because without you, I mean, a lot of majority of, of people, you know, um, for the old guard, so to speak, they're really not interested in continuing yet, but all the young people who have that huge debt load, in order to right. just by doing what we're doing right now, I hope it helps someone because I think it's great. Yeah. It does. It does. And if nothing else, Michael, what you're doing is making a little bit of positive energy in the world. And we need that, you know, because it's really easy to be overwhelmed by negativity and pessimism. And, you know, I still, you know, believe in abundance. I do believe, you know, that the future is very, very bright. And I think that we're charged with that responsibility. I think that if the future really turns sideways, it's because of decisions that we're making today. So again, I appreciate your efforts. 
Absolutely. And on that, why don't we take a short break and we'll come back with our wonderful discussion with Dr. Ernie Ward. You're listening to Your Pet Matters on 1077, 1077thebronc.com. If you own a cat or dog and have a question about your pet's overall health, call Dr. T now at 877-900-1077. Now back to the premier radio show in Mercer County for helpful advice about your pet in this week's edition of Your Pet Matters. Welcome back. And if you're just joining us, I, I'm i actually sweating because I'm very excited about talking to my guest here. My special guest is Dr. Ernie Ward. He's America's pet advocate. Um, you've, you've heard of him. He's been on every major newscast and he's been written tons of journals. He's he's doing a great a great uh, video vlog. We'll, we'll talk about that soon. But, but right now we, we've been talking about how he got into the profession and Thank God that he's actually doing what he's doing now and leading the way. And 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 part of our discussion last um, segment was was the the young vets, the up and coming vets. And it, it's it's always a top that I see in a lot of the articles. A lot of the concerns these young vets have are um, I think it's twofold. Number one is financial. So typically a veterinary student comes out with a debt equivalent to a very nice home, and that 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 paying that debt off over X amount of years, I think I think loans range from ten to thirty years. So it's almost like a true mortgage that they're they're paying. So how can they live a lifestyle, practice what they love doing, making what they need to make to pay for this? And and the other thing that that I see with the young veterinarians are just where do I go? I see a lot more internships happening and a lot of that, when I, when I meet a lot of the specialists, they, they had that drive to go forward, but a lot of people do the internship and then just kind of don't know what to do within the profession. So so I'd love your thoughts on that, Dr. Ward. Love it. Yeah, well, well, first, obviously, the student, the veterinary professional debt load is, is, quite frankly, the most terrifying aspect of the future in our profession, as far as I'm concerned, because it so burdens uh, these young emerging veterinarians with psychological pressures, which, of course, lead to burnout, compassion fatigue, I mean, just really dissatisfaction, anxiety, and stress. Uh, the second thing it does is it limits their ability, as you mentioned before, to even buy a house. I mean, with some of the, the recent changes in federal banking regulations, the way you borrow money, that actually can curtail your ability to get access to future funding. And then finally, one of the, the dangers is just um, how does it influence pricing strategies moving forward? Because if you're saddled with $200,000, $300,000 in debt, you're probably going to be more focused on you know how much you charge Mrs. Smith for Buster's ear problem as opposed to the past. I'm not saying I disagree with that, but I'm just saying you know it's a, an additional pressure. Um, and then there's one thing that I've sort of been pointing out for the past year year. And, and it's something that doesn't get discussed. So so for listeners, if you're listening today, I mean, the average student is graduating with debt over you know $160,000. So if you're looking at the actual students with debt, that's kind of the ballpark, you know, 150, 160, maybe more. Many uh, students are graduating with over $200,000 in debt. I recently met uh, a group of students and two of them will graduate with nearly $300,000 in debt, which is kind of mind blowing. So it's a huge problem. But the, the issue that I have, in addition to all those pressures we sort of just discussed, is that when you have this additional debt, it may actually do something to supply and demand that people aren't considering. Because if you're carrying this kind of additional burden, it will, in most cases, delay your retirement age. 
So that means more veterinarians may be practicing, actively practicing for longer, which means in the future, we may actually have some serious problems with an oversupply of veterinarians. Because one of the things that's happening in the U.S. is we're expanding the number of veterinary schools. So, you know, if you're looking to get into vet school, it's probably a pretty good time to try because the vet school number, the number of seats are greater than ever before. So we're expanding the number of graduates every year. On top of that, if we're now creating a debt burden that incentivizes you to stay in the profession for 30, 35 years, again, roll it back into the future or you know, roll forward into the future and we may have some problems there with, with oversupply. Um, you know, when I start to talk about people, when I talk to, to, to people about this in the profession, really they break into one of two categories. They go, no, nope, it'll never happen. You know, uh, other things, other forces will, you know, obviously counter this. And, and then the other group is like, oh crud, you're absolutely right. This is something that we're not talking about. So again, if you're listening today, when you're watching this and you're a veterinarian, we need to take this very, very seriously. Uh, you know, I, over the years, I've proposed some quite radical changes to the veterinary curriculum. You know, I do believe it's too long. Uh, and that's not because I, I just wish we could start lopping years off. I think we have to. I think that, you know, we're seeing Mississippi State and other colleges get very creative with how they admit students. So they are offering some programs where you're guaranteed entry after two years of undergrad. I think that's probably the direction we're going to have to go in. Um, that breaks my heart because as a person who's a very creative, Creative type. I want more exposure to liberal arts types of, of teachings to maybe create another generation of innovators. But regardless, it's a money thing. Uh, the second thing, too, that I think as a profession we really need to take a serious note of is this impact on our burnout rates, on just the overall satisfaction. Because, you know, Michael, you and I have seen so many colleagues, uh, whether or not they committed suicide, they've gotten divorced, they're on antidepressants, maybe they even have substance abuse issues. I mean, it's not a ha always a happy profession for many individuals. So, you know, again, I can't help but wonder how much role debt plays in that. So again, I, I know this sounds horribly depressing because I am very optimistic, excuse me, but uh, the reality is, you know, student debt is real and it's, a, it's something we have to factor in. Do, do you think decreasing tuition, the, the, so some of those countries that have, um, well, actually New York, New York had that one area where the, where the students get free tuition for for university, I, do you think that would will, will change the? the yeah, I, I, it will never happen in the United States on large scale. So we will never adopt a European or Can Canadian model of this, and that's just because our society doesn't tend to think that way. We use our taxes primarily for military as opposed to this type of infrastructure. And look, that's a, a societal choice. We vote every you know two years on these types of topics. So just just get woke, you know, pay attention. Um, but politics aside, um, obviously reducing tuition is critical. The problem there is what incentive does a university have to reduce their fees, you know, because they're making money hand over fist. Students are lining up stacked, you know, nine and 10 deep to, for every seat. Uh, and of course, now we're expanding into private for-profit institutions. So, you know, Michael, I'm with you. I wish, you know, obviously we have to lower tuition. I only, the only solution I've been able to come up with that has a reasonable chance is actually reducing the curriculum. So, I mean, you could get in after two years. Yeah. No, it's, well, two years of tuition is it could be a hundred grand depending where you go. You know, mm -hmm, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that, and, that's and again, a it's idea. a stopgap. You know, it's a stopgap. But, you know, it's just we have to start to do something. We have to get serious about this. So um, in my area, there was a bunch of owners that actually met with pr pr prospective students. Um, in New Jersey, we do not have a vet um, school. We have a, right. a, a, a pre-vet 
course at, at Rutgers, pre-vet program, which is really interesting. We've got a couple of veterinary technician schools, but we don't have a vet school. And so it was, it was interesting because the, the word I'm hearing from the students is that a lot of students interested in entering the profession are actually being discouraged at the upper level from, from owners, from administrators, from the government levels. They're, they're actually discouraging them from entering the profession. And I'd love to know your views on that. Well, as someone who my entire life was discouraged from entering our profession, I can totally relate. The pressures are different now, uh, but you know, honestly, the veterinarian that I began working for at 15 years of age, which in Georgia was the earliest I could actually work with anybody. Uh, I mean, the entire conversation for all of my years was, "Don't go into veterinary profession," you know, and 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 you know, for lots of reasons, and primarily around stress, you know, just the 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 rigors and you know the responsibilities of dealing with clients. So again, if you're a client out there. Just remember, it takes a toll on your veterinarian. Uh, but so, so, you know, discouraging, you know, how does, how much does that help? I don't think it makes a bit of difference, Michael. I mean, you know, if you're, if you're sort of bent this way, you're going to do whatever it takes to, to achieve your goal. Um, I think that what, what really needs to happen is more transparency. Students should actually look at ledgers and show this is exactly what you're going to owe. And this is exactly what you're going to make. Now, if you're comfortable with that, you know, just be aware that now this may impact your ability to buy a house, to retire in the future, to take your family on vacation, you know, because those are real issues you're going to confront. No, that, that's a great point. And, and I would joke, so any, um, I'm very proud of my students because many have actually been accepted to the profession. One of them actually falls in your category of having a debt load. Of, she's going to graduate with a debt load of $300,000. And, um, you know, and she, she, she wants to move on. She wants to do an internship um, and then do a residency. So it, it's interesting. I had interesting discussions with her, but, but I always tell my young students, the ones that are interested in entering the profession, I say, what I am able to provide you is not only any educational base that you need or your hours you needed to apply to vet school, but I'll be more than happy to show you what it's like to be a day practitioner, good and bad, right? right? And right. So, so you can make a better well, educational guess. And of that, I've had a couple students who decided not to enter the profession. Yeah, and I'll tell you, the, the one thing too, if you're listening today, that there's an also an un foreseen consequence of all of this increase in tuition and student debt load. And, you know, for years I've been, and you can hate me for saying this or not, but I've, I've said we're at risk of becoming a profession of princesses, and junkies. And what I mean by that is that you are somehow financially able to go to school. So debt's not your issue. You're everything's paid for. I mean, you're, you're this sort of, I hate to use the word elitist, but you know, you're come from means. And so the student debt doesn't affect you. And then the junkies are kind of people like you and me who we, we have to do this. I mean, we're addicted to this whole thing. And so, you know, I'm not saying that if you have those two extremes, that makes for a good mix in the profession because we actually need to be attracting people who are business savvy. We need to attract people who are very creative types to go and develop new surgical techniques or new inventions. You know, we need to attract people who are engineering minded. You know, I mean, there's so many people that we are excluding from the profession, just as you mentioned uh, earlier, because it costs so much. No, those, those are great points. And what we'll have to do is we'll have to take another break. That, that was a great discussion. Uh, we'll take a short break and we'll come back and we'll, t we'll change gears. We'll talk about pet obesity, which is an another passion in Dr. Ward's uh, um, huge list of, of passions. But it's something he really wants to talk about. You're listening to Your Pet Matters on 1077, 1077thebrock.com. A healthy pet makes for a happy home. Let's try to make your pet's home the happiest out there. Welcome back to Your Pet Matters with Dr. Michael Takiwa of the Animal Hospital at Kingston and Blauenberg. Listen to Your Pet Matters online at 1077thebronc.com or via your smartphone. Search and download WRRC1 in either Google Play or the Apple iTunes Store. 
Welcome back to Your Pet Matters. I'm your host, Michael Dr. T. Tequila, and I've been having this great discussion with my special guest, Dr. Ernie Ward. He's America's pet advocate, and um, he, we've, we've advocated that the, the tuition stress fees and just the, the general daily stresses that veterinarians have in the profession. And, and if, there's, if there's any students out there who have questions, you can definitely reach out to, to Dr. Ward at DrErnieWard.com, um, to, to, and he'll be more than happy to, to discuss things with you. I'll be happy to discuss things with you, too. Um, but we talked about things like that, but there's another thing that Dr. Ward really likes talking about, and it is prevalent in the world. And, and um, I don't know how many times I talk about the kilocalories per day, I bet you. But pet obesity is huge, and it's something that um, you know you're starting to see those viral videos of these. Usually, they're dachshunds for some reason. These 40, 50 pound dachshunds that are just struggling <laughs> to to lose weight and so forth. But but I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, Dr. Ward. Love it. Right. Well, Michael, I mean, you're right. This is the other area that I sort of shifted to. In 2005, uh, really at the uh, spurning of uh, several of my professional colleagues, Dr. Steve Budsberg, uh, head of surgery down at Georgia, past president of the American College of Veterinary Surgeons, uh, kind of said, finally, he got frustrated with me at one one night at dinner. And he was like, you know, all you ever do is talk about pet obesity. Why don't you go do something about it? And so he challenged me. And uh, that's how we established the Association for Pet Obesity Prevention in 2005. And really, my goal at 2005 was two simple things. One was to measure the prevalence because, you know, uh, one of our board members, uh, Dr. Liz Lund at the time had, had done some of the, the large scale published, you know, studies that were in, in JAVMA and all of our medical publications, but you know, nobody was kind of tracking it every year. So I said, let's just start to measure the prevalence. And so thank you to all of the hundreds of clinics throughout the United States that, that help every year gather that data. The second thing was to actually identify the problem and raise awareness because we knew in 2005, most vets were not talking about obesity. And if they were, it was kind of with a joke and a snigger. And they were like, you know, everybody likes a Garfield cat or, you know, oh, he's just a fat, happy, lazy dog. Uh, and we know none of those things are true. This is incredibly, you know, a, a deadly situation. It's a disease. And so over the years, you know, my, my message has really evolved into two primary issues with veterinarians and, and with pet owners. I want you to understand that, you know, it's not an aesthetic issue. It's not that your dog needs to slim down so it looks good in a bikini on spring break. It's actually a chronic inflammatory disease. And so that extra fat tissue is pumping out hundreds of harmful compounds and chemicals and hormones that, that are actually chipping away at its life expectancy and its quality of life. So let's pivot the, the conversation towards obesity as a disease, more specifically as an inflammatory condition. The second thing that I've sort of evolved into is that it is way more complicated than just exercise more and feed less. I kind of go bonkers now when I see even my colleagues and, and you know, who, who go in the media and say, oh, you know, if, if we could just have the owners feed them less. Michael, it is multifactorial. There are genetic influences. There are microbiome or the bacteria in the intestines that are influencing this. There are hormonal imbalances that we have yet to uncover. I mean, there are so many disease processes that lead to this. So, so if it were as simple as feed less and exercise more, A, we wouldn't have 68% of U.S. adults <laughs> overweight or obese, okay? Because that's the advice that we've been giving humans for, you know, 50 or 100 years, depending on who you want to talk to. And, and B, we wouldn't see these trends continue to grow because the advice is clear, but we know there's something else missing. And, you know, also as a practitioner, Michael, I'm sure you've had these cases where Mrs. Smith – 
is doing everything you told her. She is definitely feeding the dots on fewer calories, and yet it's not losing weight or it's not losing weight significantly. And so, you know, those are the cases that you go, wow, there's something else going on here. Uh, and you know, obviously it's multifactorial. I'm personally now getting incredibly interested in the microbiome's influence because when we're dealing with sort of side-by-side parallel, if you will, uh, disease processes, you say, what are the common factors? What are the things that could actually cross over? And the bacteria could be one of those elements. You know, obviously we're looking at environmental contaminants as well. I mean, BPA has been one of those things that we've looked at for obesity in humans. And, you know, again, a lot of th- things, but obesity, I'm sorry if I sound passionate. Is no, no, this is great. Yeah. It, is, it is the number one health threats our pets face, number one. And so, so what would what would your advice? I guess on two levels, what would your advice be for a young veterinarian out there who's who's who was trained by an old timer says, okay, just just feed them less, exercise them more, put them on RD or whatever. And uh, um, what would your advice be for their approach? And what would your advice be for the? What's the best advice you give a pet parent at home to do as well? Great question, Michael. And so for veterinarians, I'd say you need to get educated because you have a you have a very good educational background. Your foundation in nutrition is solid. Despite what some people in the media say that we only get like four hours of nutrition, you got a lot more than that. So you know a lot of nutrition. We are trained much more exhaustively in nutrition than our human medical counterparts. So you know your stuff, but maybe you need to be refreshed because maybe it's been a few years since you were out of vet school and we all know that you know within five years, everything, half of what you t- were taught is already obsolete lead or wrong. Uh, so, you know, we want to make sure that we keep up with that. And, you know, obviously that's why I wrote my book, Chow Hounds. That book is aimed really at veterinary professionals and really advanced, you know, pet owners. But I was trying to, to at that time, capture all the current data, all the, the trends and what I thought, and I'm, I'm happy it's, it stood the test of time. Then that led to helping uh, me and certainly my participation, which I'm grateful for, the American Animal Hospital Association Weight Management Guidelines that we published in 2014. So Chow Hounds was published in 2010. We then roll that over into the uh, AHA weight management guidelines. And then in 2016, the veterinary clinics of North America, we did a special textbook version, which um, many of you are familiar with that. But we did uh, a special edition in September of 2016 on weight management. So I was happy to co-author that as well. Uh, So those are good scientific evidence-based, you know, tomes for you to go and study. And you got to study. You got to keep up. And and you can no longer just dismiss it as saying, you know, well, I only feed these three foods and before we have to choose from that palate. I mean, you've really got to expand your your knowledge base because there are a lot of really good things happening in, in pet nutrition that you want you to keep aware of. If you're a pet owner listening, you know, my advice is is very different. Number one, you need to have a conversation with your veterinarian. Your veterinarian should be at minimum every time you walk in and performing a, what we call a body condition score or a BCS. And that's typically on a scale of one to nine. Uh, and they actually give you a number. And I know it has shortcomings. You know, it's not perfect. I'm not happy with it. But, you know, it's as, it's as close of, of, to a BMI in vet world that we have. So your vet should be giving you a BCS and be actually calculating the calories you should be feeding. You should not walk out of your vet's office without knowing what your pet's current uh, body condition is and how much you should be feeding it. Very specific. If you do not get that information, ask for it. If they do not give it, find another vet. I'm sorry to be so blunt, but you know it is so important. When I say it's the number one health threat, I mean it because if you want your pet to live a longer life, you're going to pay attention to nutrition. If you want to have a high quality of life with your pet, you're going to pay attention to nutrition. So it, to me, we, we've long progressed this you know stage where you can ignore it. And look, I don't want 
veterinary medicine to go the way of human medicine, where when you go and talk to your general practitioner, your family doctor, they don't talk about your food. They put you on a scale and go, uh, you know, already maybe you ought to lay off the extra chocolates or whatever they say, but we got to go deeper. Veterinary medicine, we can do better and we have to speak for our patients. So you've got to be that voice. So again, then if you, your pet needs to lose weight, talk to your vet about the strategies. You know, I mean, we all employ different, different types of, of formulations. I would say that most most of the pet patients that I see, we're going to actually change them to a higher protein, low carb diet. You know, so I mean, there's some neat formulations. We typically try to boost the fiber. There's some supplements that have strong evidence behind them. L-carnitine is at the top of that list for weight loss. You know, uh, in animals and in humans. You know, omega-3 fatty acids also have some evidence to help. So, so again, you're going to talk to your vet to get that whole package. Exercise is a far distant part of this equation. You know, when you look at how humans and dogs burn calories, we are very efficient at moving and dogs are very efficient at moving. So you've got to go and walk your dog for an hour to make any kind of impact. So weight loss, better nutrition begins at the food bowl. And that's where you want to focus most of your attention. Of course, we exercise for other benefits. But again, if you're trying to slim down your dog or your cat, then I'm going to tell it, say, pay attention to the food bowl. That, that's, that's awesome. The things that were going through my mind when you were talking were that the AHA guidelines are – I remember every time we get our AHA accreditation, they're looking for our body condition scores and, and kilocalorie recommendations. It's, like it's almost like one of the gold standards that you, you strive for if you're a practicing veterinarian or you're, you're a business owner. You definitely want to get that on board. But, but that's great advice. And the other thing that was going through my mind is there's more and more veterinary nutritionists out there. And it's so funny because I get to know more and more of them, and they'll be more than happy. So if if you feel a little uncomfortable about nutrition as a practicing veterinarian, or you want um, as a client or as a pet owner, you want better guidelines. There's veterinary nutritionists out there who will more than be happy to to work the formulations with you and 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 go from there. Because I know a lot of of pet pet parents in my area like to home cook, and I think right. It's- oh, wait. And I agree. I, I love and we will definitely give you a diet. I, the one word of caution I would urge for pet owners out there is, you know, know who you're talking with. I mean, there are a lot of people who just sort of are these self-proclaimed pet experts. You know, they they had a dog, they fed it something and something happened and therefore they're an expert. So, you know, we really want to be cautious around this area, just as, you know, if you had a cough, if you had a, a lump, I hope you wouldn't just go to the Internet and take advice from just whoever. Uh, I really want us to have this trusted relationship with a veterinarian because again, you know, there are no kickbacks. Lord, I wish, I, you know, I, I don't even understand how these myths, you know, that we're not paid for the, by the drug companies. They didn't pay for our, our, our student loans. I, maybe, maybe that's a solution, Michael. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we don't get any kind of kickbacks or anything. It's kind of ridiculous. We're no different than your human medical doctor. I mean, we have a strict code of ethics around all of these types of issues. And so, you know, again, just be careful who you trust because I, we do find a lot of people that, that come into our clinics and they've gotten advice off the internet or some kind of service off the internet and man they are nutritionally deficient you know so they, t- they now we start to see nutrient deficiencies that are actually causing a secondary problem a- absolutely and I, I joke that your neighbor our goal is to get your neighbor and dr google a veterinary degree that's our goal <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <I love> that. <laughs> okay with that we'll take another short break and we'll come back and finish our wonderful discussion with dr ernie ward you're listening to Your Pet Matters on 1077thebronc.com. If you own a cat or dog and have a question about your pet's overall health, call Dr. T now at 877-900-1077. Now back to the premier radio show in Mercer County for helpful advice about your pet in this week's edition of Your Pet Matters.
Okay, and we're back, and and I, I'm I'm really blown away because I've had a great, wonderful discussion. The time has actually flown like crazy. We only have one segment more to talk to my special guest, Dr. Ernie Ward, and and he recently attended the uh, Consumer Electronics Show (CES). Just just was held, and I I've been I've been looking at all the videos and YouTube videos of all the the hot tech out there, and and um, you know. It, that's kind of my passion about um, things, and I always want to integrate that with veterinary medicine. And so um, I know that he spent some time down there, um, courtesy of Hills, I guess it was, right? You guys, there's a Hills uh, group of you down there? Yes, yes, yes. There was a, a couple of different sponsors, and they were kind enough to send us out there. And, and yeah, it was like a kids and candy store because oh, we were all tech geeks. I'm so and, jealous. Yeah. But, but what, so what, 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 what did you um, see down there that you think is, is prevalent, and where do you see tech and veterinary medicine going in the future? Yeah, well, this was a bucket list for me, uh, for sure. I'm a longtime tech geek, you know, and I've I've really embraced uh, technology from early on in my career. In fact, uh, you know, one of the first things we did out of the gate, and if you go back and look at some of the old medical journals, I ran ads. I, I developed something called Telepet, which was the first automated and fax on demand system. So you could actually call up your veterinarian after hours and either get fax backs, you know, back wow. when we used to have fax machines, and you could fax back a, a information on roundworms or ear infections. Or or whatever, or you could choose to listen to pre-recorded uh short snippets of information explaining roundworms or ear infection. And of course, we also had emergency paging, all that stuff. So Telepet goes back to 1994. Wow. And so anyway, uh, so I've, I've always been a fan of this. And so um, we were we were asked to go there, um, you know, and basically we could just do whatever we wanted. But I think most of us were looking for medical translations of current technologies. And so obviously, you know, I was gravitating towards three major uh, categories, and I guess I'll touch on all of them. The first, of course, was augmented and virtual reality. And so um, what a lot of the vendors there were showing different goggles, glasses and things that that can project. So now you're in surgery, for example, and you can see, you know, outlines of, of vasculature or nerves or things like that. It sort of enhances what you're seeing. So imagine, you know, instead of us like looking on a computer screen at a diagram of anatomy, you can now project that in real time. And obviously these are still early days for this technology, but it's fascinating stuff uh, where we saw the most most application was actually in the teaching area. So now in stu for students, for young veterinary students, um, because, you know, obviously we don't like them to do live animal surgeries. I mean, that's sort of something that I think is, is definitely, you know, that time has come and gone. And so we're using sort of these um, – you know, something called Sendavers. And so I don't know if you guys have seen these, but they're sort of these really complex and cool rubbery types of cadavers that you practice surgery on. But it's still, you know, there's, I mean, it's awesome and it's a big step forward, but you know, it's not still the same thing. And so if we can create virtual reality worlds with haptic feedback or meaning that you feel sensations when you wear a glove or whatever, um, now we're getting somewhere really meaningful. And, you know, honestly, what, what we saw for that was more of a teaching application. I, I can see myself in the future doing surgery assisted by AR, but, you know, really it would be better, I think, from a teaching standpoint. Um, the second thing that we were looking at, or at least I was looking at very closely, was wearable technology. So, you know, obviously we've had products in our veterinary space. Uh, one that Michael and I liked very much was called Voice, which had some very robust biometric monitoring. So if you're a pet owner, that, that means that we could measure your heart, the pet's heart rate, respiratory rate, body temperature – 
activity and those sorts of things. And that's really meaningful for us as veterinarians because maybe it's a dog that's gone home uh, after surgery and we want to monitor recovery. Maybe it's a dog with a heart condition. You know, so again, we can measure heart arrhythmias. I mean, so there's a lot of things. Um, Michael, sadly, I didn't see a lot of innovation in the wearables space. I saw some cool almosts, but again, they were kind of early days. One of the most exciting, two, two of the most exciting wearables I saw, while they don't have direct veterinary application yet, number one, uh, Revlon, yes, Revlon, the makeup manufacturer, made a tiny device that you you put on like an applique on your fingernail. Women like wear the 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 pretty fingernail things, right? So it's like a little dot and it had some colors and it measured UV exposure, which is brilliant. So brilliant. Uh, and kudos, they got a lot of awards, I think, uh, for that design because it's very small and it basically just would tell your smartphone, hey, you've been in the sun too long. So I love that. The second one was a product uh, and I believe that they were from Israel, but it was a, a wearable for humans that had some modular components. And so the thinking is, instead of just measuring your heart rate, like you know our Apple watches and, and other devices do, what if we could measure blood alcohol levels? So you could pop in a module to do that. What if you wanted to measure, again, they had a UV exposure module. So if you're out fishing or in the sun, you know, playing golf, the guy said, you know, what if you wanted to measure an EKG if you have a heart condition? So I like that module, modular aspect of that, but but again, wearables seem to have stalled around actually the the biometric capabilities. And I talked to a couple of vendors in depth. I was like saying, same, this is the same, same, you know, what's new? And he said, actually, we think next year's when we're going to have more approval of some of the better, you know, more robust, because let's face it, we need better and more accurate uh, heart rate, SpO2s. You know, we need to be able to measure uh, gyroscopically respiration, for example. So it's coming. But that. then the third thing that I was looking at, and and don't laugh, but uh, I'll be having uh, I'm I'm writing about this as we speak. Uh, but that was robotics because robotics really have two clear utilities moving forward. One, of course, is to assist us in our daily lives. So you saw lots of very advanced, very smart, artificially enhanced, uh, artificially intelligence enhanced robots that can do some pretty complex things. I mean, they can uh, detect if you've fallen down and assist you up. They can detect if you uh, your body temperature is changing. I mean, so they're doing some cool stuff. Of course, they go and get you a glass of water and you know, they can even mop your floor. But you know, I was really looking at how can they help? And all of the talk was around elder care. So it's like, how can we put these in homes of older people to actually provide some meaningful feedback? The second thing and the hit of CES, by all accounts, was Sony's relaunch of the Ibo puppy robot. Uh, and I, I had never seen one in real life. You know, they, these things were launched uh, famously in 1999. They ran them till 2005 and then they sort of fell off because Sony became frustrated because they, they wanted the dog to progress faster and the artificial intelligence capability wasn't there. They actually originally debuted the Ibo, just so you know, also as as an elder care device. So they, you know, th this is a very sophisticated, uh, long platform, but they brought it back and they were demoing it real time there. And Michael, I was blown away. Uh, and again, I'll be writing on this, but it was, it, it is very realistic. You know, they've done a great job with the LED lights. It actually learns. So like when you get your IBO, it's just like a new puppy. It doesn't know how to sit or stay. You have to teach it to come. You have to teach it to play with a ball. It actually responds to the person who interacts with it, with it more. It recognizes your voice by raising its ears. I mean, it's pretty sophisticated and they're just scratching the surface. But what impressed me most about this was so, and in fact, I, I got drawn into with 
the guy who's giving the demo because he found out I was a veterinarian. I was like, yeah, I need to do a physical exam on this, you know, and uh, he asked me if I was a computer engineer. So the so joke was on me. But as I'm interacting with this Ibo robot, I looked at the crowd and Michael – Every every person in the crowd was smiling. They were beaming. They were they were connecting emotionally in a way that it's hard to explain. But you know, again, so we saw great advances, AR, VR, you know, with surgery and teaching. We saw wearables doing some kind of cool things, unexpected things with the Revlon's UV detector, and then finally robotics. You know, not only helping us live better lives, but maybe you know, creeping into the pet world. Yeah, no, I was, I, the, the thought that. Um I had two feelings about the eyeball. I was, I was blown away with the videos I saw too with the, the – just the expression of the eyes yeah. blew me away and, and how like they would do these little head tilts and stuff. But but two things. One would be the actual replacement of pets, right? It's like you know, it, I think that's going to be a controversial issue. But the other thing was how would a pet if – you, if you can handle like just only having one real pet, would you introduce the eyeball as your second pet and how would that pet interact with the eyeball? That's, those are things that I, that's really intriguing to me for the future. Those are actually two elements that I've got in an upcoming blog and video uh, because you're absolutely right, Michael. I mean, your instincts are spot on, and uh, I think that it impacts in lots of different ways. Uh, I actually am more like you. I see the second scenario as more as additive and beneficial as opposed to an outright threat, although I do think there is that component there. Um, you know, it, it's an interesting history of, of all of this, and, uh, you know, it's probably for another discussion, but the reality is if you're out there today and, you know, you have a, a love of your life that has to have four legs and fur, you know, I don't think that IBO is going to replace that in any way, shape or form. Uh, having said that, um, I think the veterinary profession needs to pay very close attention, especially with how Gen Z, which are kid, like kids, my kids age, how they start to respond and adapt to these new emerging uh, technologies, because we don't know. Yeah, absolutely. No, and that's a great point. And so you, you, you'll, you'll probably um, see Dr. Ward talk about this on his, his vlog. It's Off-Label Veterinary News. It's a weekly vlog he does. It's, it's phenomenal. Um, it's very informative for both veterinarians and pet owners as well. Um, so thanks so much. The time has flown. It always flies during great conversations. I really appreciate you being here and, and taking the time to, to talk to me. Thanks so much, Dr. Ward. Uh, thank you. And listen, uh, also podcast, The Veterinary Viewfinder. I've got a couple of great co-hosts. We tackle the toughest topics in veterinary medicine. So if you're a veterinarian or a veterinary curious person, uh, definitely check out that on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, all that. Yeah, and we'll post all those links on our, our Facebook page. So remember, everyone, love your pet like they love you unconditionally. Have a great day. Thank you for seeing our doctor this morning. You have been listening to Your Pet Matters, the number one pet health care show in Mercer County. Your follow-up appointment is next Saturday at 10 a.m. Tune in to hear Dr. Michael Tequiwa of the Animal Hospital at Kingston and Blauenberg, along with his expert guests as they share their knowledge and experiences to help your pet live a long, happy, and healthy life. Want to catch up on Dr. T's advice? Click on the Your Pet Matters page at 1077thebronc.com. Your Pet Matters is underwritten by the pet wellness professionals of the Animal Hospital at Kingston and Blauenberg. Small Hospital, Big Medicine. For more information, it's BarkMeOutVets.com or like the Animal Hospital of Kingston and Blauenberg on Facebook. Tune in next week at 10 for another edition of Your Pet Matters exclusively on 107.7 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com.